Welcome to Mosaics, a podcast featuring the vibrant and diverse stories of refugee resettlement in Idaho. I'm your host, Holly Beach, with the Idaho Office for Refugees. So today I'm here with two people who worked together at the Idaho Office for Refugees for 20 years, so they know a bit about the history of resettlement in Idaho and how the program developed over the years. So please join me in, wel- in welcoming Jan Reeves and Patty Haller. Thank you so much for being here to both of you. Thank Thanks you. for inviting us. So Jan, you were the director of the Idaho Office for Refugees and you worked in resettlement even before the office was created. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this work? Well, I came to Boise in 1983 from Eastern Idaho. I'd lived in around Victor, Idaho for eight years and landed in Boise and was uh, somewhat rudderless, as a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. and was uh, taking some classes at Boise State University, possibly pursuing an advanced degree. And then I found uh, an ad in the newspaper, of all places, for a refugee services specialist with the Idaho Refugee Services Program, which was the program in existence at the time through the Department of Health and Welfare, uh, and I applied for the job and didn't get it, but I at least got interviewed and re- received a call a few weeks later saying that there would be a temporary job available if I was interested, and I said, sure, I'd love it, and the rest is history. I started working there in 1985 and continued on throughout the rest of my career in one, with one home or another, but all around refugee resettlement. Mm-hmm. What about you, Patty? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the work. Well, I came to Boise in 1990, and my first job was working for Jan on an immigration grant. And then when I came to the Idaho Office for Refugees, I was working with the Department of Health and Welfare, administering several different grants for children and families, vulnerable adults. So. I had a little bit of contact with refugee services through that and through my work with Jan. And so when the office was formed outside of state government, I was excited about the opportunity to build services that were more holistic for refugees. I think one really good example of that is Global Gardens, which is a popular program here in the Treasure Valley, and they grow fresh, fresh vegetables sold to restaurants and markets and directly to customers. And I understand that you were a major force behind getting that started. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Global Gardens started out as an idea to help senior refugees. And also at the time we were resettling people from the Somali Bantu, who had, many of them had been in camps for decades, but they had an agrarian background. So we were concerned that it might take them longer to get jobs. And so in the meantime, we wanted a way for them to be able to learn English in a non-threatening atmosphere, to get outside and be active, and to have food. So it started out as community gardens, and we worked with the Girl Scouts and the synagogue were the first two gardens, but really it was all about just getting people outdoors Mm -hmm. and not so much about 
the farming and the marketing to start out. Mm-hmm. And it has grown. I'm tickled every time I see how many of the farmers at the farmer's market came through that program. Wow. And when I see on restaurant menus, they're one of the suppliers. I think it's just fabulous. And it also, you know, it allows people to be seen. So often refugees are labeled as refugees. Mm-hmm. And they're, um, that's such a, I mean, it's an important part of their story, but it's not the whole story. And so being seen as a market gardener or a farmer is just a, a much nicer label, I think, for a lot of people. It is really impressive to see how the program has grown. I think it's now the largest CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, which is selling directly to customers in the Treasure Valley. And we work closely with KIN, um, which is a James Beard awardee in the Northwest. It's just really cool, the quality of the produce and the businesses. And Idaho Capital Sun just wrote a beautiful feature on one of the farmers, Sophia. And so it's really growing, not to use a pun, but it has been growing and thriving. So... Mm -hmm. And were you also a part of Global Talents Foundation, another program of our office? Well, I was the director of the office at the time Global Talent was started, but it was actually initiated by uh, a volunteer. His name is Lisa Cooper and Tara Wolfson, who was our employment coordinator at IOR at the time. And they brainstormed this idea to have an opportunity or to create opportunities for people who had professional credentials overseas to be able to utilize those credentials here in Idaho. It was very difficult for people with uh, higher education to find employment commensurate with their education and it was even unusual for them to find opportunities within the field uh, in general, even at an entry level. So the Global Talent Initiative was really one to try to get people back into their professions. And it may take years and years for them to actually get to the point where they think they should be or would like to be, but it was an open door for people to begin to resume, re, reclaim their careers, as it were. So I, back to Global Gardens, I think when I think about the evolution of the program from a small grant for older refugees, which was the initial impetus for the program to where it is today. It's just a great example of how a little bit of creativity, a little bit of financial resources can actually go a very long way in helping people to integrate fully into their community. So it's a, it's a, I'm glad you brought it up and it's a great example of what can be done for people who uh, just need the opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. I like Patty, how you mentioned the holistic approach because people often wonder what Idaho Office Refugees is. Are you a state office or are you a resettlement agency? What do you do? And it's like, well, we're a nonprofit that contracts, you know, with the federal government, with resettlement agencies to make sure that Idaho has a solid resettlement program. But then on the side of all that, we get to create programs like Global Gardens and Global Talent and be innovative so that people can not just, you know, survive but thrive, right. as they say. So. It's cool to see the ripple effects of the work that you both did continue to grow today and help people find that that wellness all around. You know, one more thing I would add to that is that programs like Global Gardens brought in so many people from the community to refugee work that 
aren't the usual players. So you know, when we were starting out, we worked with contractors, you know, people who haul soil. We had small grants from a lot of local organizations. I remember going to the Community Foundation and asking for money for a porta potty, mm-hmm. which is not glamorous, <laughs> but that's really fun, what we needed. Fun you know? grant report to write. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But they did it, you know. And so I think it really helped introduce a lot of people to refugees in the community that would not otherwise have even known anything about refugee resettlement here. Mm-hmm. I think that's still the case today. We have a lot of people wanting to volunteer because they say, I met a farmer at the farmer's market and learned there from a refugee background. I didn't know we had refugees in Idaho. Can I help? And it's so fun to get people plugged in that way. So when Idaho Office Refugees was formed in the mid-90s, what was it like for you public sentiment-wise? Was it really well known that we had a resettlement program? Were people very supportive? What did it look like then? I think over the years there has been a growing awareness, hopefully there's been a growing awareness among the population at large that we have a refugee resettlement program and that the people that are coming here for protection, for resettlement opportunities, have great value and they have assets that they bring with them and they have limited ability to utilize those assets without some sort of assistance from the community at large. I think there's been a growing appreciation for the value that refugees bring to our community over time. And if I go back to when I first started in the mid 80s, there was awareness, I think, of refugees in the community, but there was also a a belief that the refugee program was in charge of that, Uh, that uh, medical practice uh, or uh, service delivery programs, housing programs would always turn to the refugee resettlement agencies and to the IOR for assistance because they really weren't sure how to work with refugees. And the reality is that you work with with refugees just like you work with anybody else. There's no real inherent difference. But because of some of the cultural differences and linguistic differences, there was a sense of, uh, I just don't know if I can deal with this. So uh, I think one of the great successes of the resettlement community, those who work professionally within the resettlement community, including all of the service providers to build uh, capacity outside of the resettlement program within the community so that everyone feels a sense of ownership of resettlement, um, the process of resettlement and integration of refugees. And I think that uh, is one of the things I look to as a, uh, a major change in the evolution of resettlement services. So early on, there wasn't nearly as much of that and there, we really didn't have qualified interpreters. Mm. And that was one of the things that Patty was especially engaged in over the years, was helping to develop a core of professional trained interpreters who uh, understood the dynamic and who understood the essential rules of interpretation and could actually facilitate that communication between those who don't speak English so well and those who need to understand what their needs are. So I think that maybe Patty can speak a little bit more to the development of an interpreter base. 
Well, I, I guess the only thing I would add to that is that a lot of people, we worked both with interpreters and also with people working with interpreters mm-hmm. so that they knew how. The one thing I always wished we had done was interpreter training for refugees, working with interpreters for refugees oh. when they first arrive, because I think often they are the ones who don't know what to expect from their interpreter. So that's a really that's good still, point. Still a need. I'm taking notes. Good, that's a good, good point. And and it's like you have to share some very personal information in these sessions that are being interpreted. You're vulnerable, and you've already gone through a very vulnerable situation. Mm-hmm. So that is, I don't know what that looks like. Now on the ground, maybe the resettlement agencies already have a way of helping them prepare for that, but that's a really good point. Just back to the uh, assessment of public attitudes toward refugees and refugee resettlement, uh, it's it's hard to quantify that uh, in particular, but in 2017, Boise State University conducted a public opinion survey uh, of a number of different elements of our society, including education and as one. And refugee resettlement was one of the topics that they addressed and asked, I think there were a thousand respondents to the survey about their opinions about refugee resettlement, whether refugees were value added or were a burden or whether uh, they had any encounters with refugees and if they had, if they were positive or negative. And it was, it was a very interesting result in that Generally, what I took away from this survey was that when people had encountered refugees, uh, they tended to have a a more positive view of them in their communities. And so communities that did not experience refugee resettlement uh, tended to have less positive views compared to those that did experience refugee resettlement. So uh, it's encouraging to hear that because all of the efforts that go into uh, creating a higher level of capacity within the community uh, really can pay off because uh, people that uh, have a positive experience are going to welcome more people coming in. Yeah, I've noticed that too, like especially living in Boise that has had a strong program for many decades. Uh, I do see a lot of appreciation, friendships being made, employers coming back to us time and time again wanting to work with people coming through the refugee resettlement program and just the appreciation of the culture and the food and the language and the perspectives. Even just doing this podcast, my perspective on time is shifting, like how I view time, how I view community. It's such an honor and a privilege. And I think encountering people and making those friendships goes a long way, which is why another program of IOR founded the Refugee Speakers Bureau, because storytelling and sharing of oneself is such a powerful way to maybe bridge any hesitation or fear that might have existed toward the unknown. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that formed. Sounds, I think well, you, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's another thing that's very gratifying to see an idea come to fruition and in, with very small steps initially, but gradually gain momentum and gain support and gain funding to be able to actually be a program that community organizations and groups can call on mm-hmm. to have someone come and talk to their group about their experience as a refugee. 
So it's, you know, the more, the better uh, in terms of that kind of experience being shared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been really rewarding. And it's also a chance for someone to, you know, get a paid opportunity and to receive training to feel more confident in front of people, to find a story within yourself that maybe you didn't know that story was there. You just... And, and uncover it and work with others and not feel so alone. So I'm really grateful to both of you for the work that you put into for these things to still be going on today that I get to work with. So the speak when I started out with refugee services, Jen and I and other staff were often asked to do the public speaking mm. about refugees, and it's so different to hear from someone who is the one who has experienced it rather mm -hmm. than me trying to tell somebody else's story. And it's night and day different. Yeah, and a lot of times the mission, their desire aligns so well. Because I always tell people, only say yes to a speaking engagement if you if it's beneficial to you as well. You know, don't do it to do me a favor or because you feel pressured to. And a lot of times people are like, no, I care about the refugees coming after me, and I want to make sure I do my part to help pave the way for them. And so that's always really cool when our missions align like that and then someone gets to share and to see people respond and react and to see that growth. So yeah. it's been really special. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about you were in resettlement through some fluctuations and through some world events that really impacted American public opinion, and I'm sure in Idaho as well. So one I wanted to talk to you about was what was it like to be in resettlement during the 9-11 period when numbers dropped and obviously public sentiment changed? Well, it was very difficult. It's true that public sentiment changed. There was, well, the federal government very responsibly looked at the whole process of refugee admissions in light of the fact that uh, the terrorist attacks on 9-11 were committed by foreign nationals. They were not refugees. In fact, there were no refugees involved in any of that. But uh, because refugees were a program that uh, required security background checks and refugees were vetted before they were allowed to enter the U.S., this was a place that the government could look at because it was already a program in existence. And how can we somehow strengthen the security around the refugee admissions process. So the result was that the whole program stopped for a number of months, almost a year, before new protocols were put in place to further ensure that the right people were being admitted through the refugee resettlement program and not someone who was trying to do us harm. So it, logically, it doesn't make sense that someone who wanted to do harm to the U.S. would wait for 10 years in a refugee <laughs> camp in order to be admitted as a refugee, still uh, there was fear that there would be people slipping in that shouldn't be here that weren't really bona fide refugees. So that was difficult because it put a lot of stress on the program. It put funding at risk and refugees were simply not allowed to come and they were in harm's way where they were. It was very hard to accept the fact that we could not help people that were desperate for protection. And public opinion, of course, was affected as it, it's, I think it's only natural that people are afraid in a situation like that where 
They just want to be assured that there is no risk to themselves, to their families, to their community. So there, on the one hand, there was a lot of sympathy, a lot of empathy for people who were here. I remember there being a rally on the Capitol steps in Boise on behalf of refugees and Muslims in particular, because mm -hmm. they were the ones who were being targeted by you know, the fearful and the hate mongers. But it was the other side of the story, I think, that there were many community interests, in, including leadership, political leadership within the city of Boise and the state to respect the rights of people who were here and not to automatically judge people based on what some other folks have done. I think one other part of that is that when resettlement stops, you lose so much capacity mm. within the community. So medical providers, the schools were not spending some of their budget on having interpreters. And so then as people um, start coming again, you just have to rebuild from the bottom. Mm. Same with the resettlement agencies. You know, they didn't have the staff so that, and they didn't have the history and the expertise that they had built over the years. So when people did start arriving again, that created a strain not only on resettlement agencies, but on other community systems that had lost capacity and had to rebuild it again. Yeah, we're going through a phase of that now, post-COVID and post some of the lower arrivals that we saw in the previous administration. So the growth and the build back, and you're right, the institutional knowledge and the flow of things, you know, it's like getting a train going again. It takes some time to build back up. So we've definitely been feeling that over the past couple of years. And it's also exciting. Um, and more people have been able to come and more families have been able to reunite. But it's been, um, I think, another phase like that of getting rebuilt. I want to ask about things that you experienced in this work that really meant a lot to you, that you still hold dear to this day, because you stayed in it for a long time, so it called to you, and I just would like to hear more about that. I'm not sure that this, this is something that I hold dear, but I think one of the things I've always felt about refugee resettlement and why one of the things that is important about it is that, especially maybe f from the IOR standpoint where you are not working as closely with individuals, but you're working with systems mm -hmm. across the community, is if you can build a system that works for refugees, you are building a system that is going to work for a whole lot of other vulnerable populations. And I think one of the things that has been great about refugee resettlement is it has brought resources to our community that we would not necessarily otherwise have had. And one example of that is training on working with people who have experienced trauma or torture. And, you know, that crosses, I mean, refugees have experienced it. People who have lived with domestic violence have experienced it. Our veterans have experienced it. And so medical providers who are trained in recognizing trauma and working through that trauma with people, I think, has been, it just has a much, much broader impact than just the people who are 
directly served by that service. And it was, you know, it was uh, grants through refugee services that brought a lot of that trauma training to Boise. And I think there are a lot of other examples of that. Transportation, public transportation has been impacted by refugees because they are a major user of it. And it has improved over the years as a result. So I guess that's one of the things that kept me Mm. going with it. I think you're so right because Neighbors United continues to operate in the Treasure Valley. And if you listen to this podcast, you probably heard me talk about Neighbors United, but it is our office helps support it. But it's like 50 to 100 different organizations across these different sectors of public transportation, education, health care, mental health care, youth, and homelessness prevention. So they serve the whole community, but they're very interested in making sure that there's best practices and resources for working specifically with refugee populations. And I remember... After some of those very first meetings mm-hmm. of, it, it wasn't called Neighbors United at that time, but some of those early meetings, people would come up to me and say, I have never, service providers in different systems would say, I've never been in a room with all these different service providers. Mm-hmm. We've never talked across programs like this before. So I think that was a huge impact, in at least in the Boise community. Yeah. Now, I have to agree that building the community capacity or fostering, I guess, that building of community capacity was probably one of the most rewarding experiences in my entire career in refugee resettlement. It was fairly early on that we realized that if we didn't have community support, if we didn't have community members involved in most aspects, if not every aspect of a refugee's life and resettlement, life in particular, then we were more vulnerable than we would be if we had people involved. I I have to go back to 1988, when it was just a couple of years after I started as as an employment specialist. The program that was in existence in Idaho Falls at the time uh, was in a crisis because there was a community uproar about the treatment of refugees. There was conflict within the mainstream community about how to go about working with refugees. There had been a conscious effort to try to downplay the fact that refugees were being resettled. It was sort of under the radar. People would arrive and they would get jobs and there was not a lot of community knowledge of what was happening within their own community. So in the end, that program failed for lack of community support. Mm. And it became, that. I think that was one of the strongest lessons that I took away from my early years in working with refugees is you, without a solid foundation of community support, there really was no way to survive a crisis. Mm. So we were not alone in our belief that this was a positive uh, direction to take. Other programs in the country were looking at the same thing. And in the end, this isn't the end yet, but uh, at this point in time, uh, it's really rewarding to see how many people are actively engaged with the process of integration of refugee families in our state. One final question I have for both of you is, how do you think resettlement has helped shape what Idaho is today? I would just start by saying that Patty Haller taught me early on that we are better for having refugees among us. 
it's a positive enhancement to our lives. It's it's enriching and it's economically advantageous to have people here from different backgrounds with different skills. And if we can fully utilize everyone's innate abilities and potential, then we're we're better off for having refugees in our midst. I'm not sure what I can add to that. <laughs> you taught just, him. Just, you take, taught just him. take credit, Patty. Just take yeah. credit. <laughs> I get the sense that Patty's not one to take credit easily. She's like, oh, this old thing, this old thing I created. <laughs> Anything you'd like to leave with our, with our listeners? Well, I, I would just add that I feel like I left with the program in exceptionally good hands. So that the people who are currently carrying on have taken it to the next level, have taken the opportunities for refugees arriving in our communities to a higher level. And it's just very rewarding and exciting to know that, that the program carries on and is stronger than ever. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming and sharing today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation. For more information on how to be involved with refugee resettlement, please visit IdahoRefugees.org. Mosaics is produced by the Idaho Office for Refugees with grant support from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. Music by the Afrosonics. Production and partnership with SB Studios.